0: It should be clear by now to regular listeners of this program which war movies Adam added to the list. Two of your hosts are taking the premise of this show seriously, and one of us just wants to spooge all over the Muscle Man action movies he loved when he was nine, and his best friends were two bowling pins he found at the dump. He literally squeezed at the very mention of Paul Verhoeven, and I think it's because he knows for sure he's going to get to see boobs but I can and do bag on Adam all day, and that's not what these intros are meant to do. Primarily, they're meant to bag on Ben, but he's an innocent party here. So I'm gonna try and make the case for Robocop being a war movie, if for no other reason than as an intellectual exercise. You never know when you're gonna be tied to a chair and forced at gunpoint by a weepy-eyed villain to make the case that Bagger Vance is a war movie. You have to be prepared for any eventuality. Well, let's start with 1987. See, Reagan loved things that went boom, and he'd been rattling his saber throughout the early 80s while Brezhnev and Andropov matched him in both brown suits and ICBMs. This felt like an almost war, one we could lose at any moment. Konstantin Chernyenko was the last of that old guard, and he died in 1985, leaving a new generation of young leaders in charge of the Soviet Union. Did you know that Gorbachev was the first Soviet General Secretary not born under the rule of the Tsar? Well, that's incredible to imagine, that he was both the first and last truly Soviet leader. Anyway, Reagan was pushing his Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, and Tom Cruise was zooming around on a Kawasaki ninja making the U.S. Navy popular with high schoolers, and the whole country was kind of on a war footing. The Pentagon was engorged on hyper-expensive technology that didn't work, and the big defense contractors were answerable to no one, funded by the black budgets of government agencies no one had even heard of. The fictional Skynet debuted with the Terminator in 1984 and by 1987 seemed prescient, as it does still now, 30 years later. The biggest crisis, though, was domestic. This is the era of American decline, the rust belt, the death of the city. In 1982, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates to 19% to stave off inflation after a disastrous decade which made American manufactured goods super expensive on the export market, while foreign goods were cheap. Cash flooded into the economy, but it was all flashy investment money, while the big industrial cities of Buffalo, Cleveland, Detroit, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, etc. all screeched to a halt and fell apart. It happened surprisingly fast. The energy in America switched from the deer hunter world to the Gordon Gecko one. Assets were leveraged, gobbled up, spit out, and the money went to Wall Street and to Hollywood and the impenetrable boardrooms of defense contractors in California, Maryland, Virginia, and Seattle. Intracity racial tension, long exacerbated by white flight, and now compounded by the lack of work and the crack epidemic, made downtowns feel like battlegrounds to anxious middle-class suburbanites. The decline, the anger, the intractable poverty, and the crumbling infrastructure made it seem like we'd already fought a war and lost, even as we were being told we were winning. So to understand RoboCop is to recognize this transition. The Cold War was already waning, but had always been by definition an abstraction. A war with no real fighting, conducted by spies and economic sanctions and small proxy wars, and mutually assured destruction diplomacy the urban war was the more deadly one. Reagan defunded social services, precipitating crises in mental health, homelessness, elder care, education, and a dozen other things. Corporations were becoming state actors, privatizing once basic public services as for-profit enterprises, and a class of nihilistic ultra-rich were just starting to build the technology and media systems to consolidate their wealth and positioning it as much against a desperate and ragged underclass as a foreign invader. All the vapid anti-intellectual media garbage that we suffer under today got its start in this climate. The evangelical eyeshadow money orgies and the Donahue incest weep-fests and the South-Will-Rise-Again trucker car-jump fantasies and the hump-your-leg Jersey Shore hair metal, they were all dumbing us down hard and fast. So Verhoeven, in all his Dutchness, pulled a deft sleight of hand here he intuited that half of America felt we were on the verge of war against downtown drug crazies and motorcyclists and break dancers and black women who weren't deferential enough at the DMV, while the other half was certain war was looming against cigar-chomping, globalizing urban renewal fat cats and cigar-chomping generals sitting atop mountains of skulls and cigar-chomping cigarette company pseudoscientists poo-pooing acid rain and anyone else that ever chomped a cigar and sat on a mountain of skulls. So Verhoeven gave us both enemies, and he put them in cahoots, which is kind of what Trump did. Well, if you haven't seen Robocop before, you probably have some preconceived notions about it, and heaven forbid you should think it was bad. Graphic violence is an understatement. The film received 11X ratings before enough cuts were made to give it the R rating shown in theaters. The violence is comic book dumb, but it's gnarly all the same. To audiences at the time, who hadn't seen two dozen Marvel properties trivialize the death of millions, it was visceral. For some reason, movies of this time really wanted criminals to make crazy eyes and laugh like hyenas and act with irrational disregard for human life. I guess so moviegoers didn't start sympathizing with the criminals. But in the case of RoboCop, well, he was a cop. He was a good cop, in spite of being a robot cop, unlike the other robot cop. Robot Cop is going to put an end to corruption and criminality as soon as he gets his guns calibrated and as soon as he gets back in touch with his human feelings. I won't bore you recapping the ins and outs of this movie about a robot cop as much as Adam wants me to, because it's all there in the name. RoboCop. Is it a war movie? God, no. No, not by any definition, no matter how hard I try. But Adam comes and makes those big puppy dog eyes and... Sometimes brings me breakfast sandwiches so it makes it in just under the wire. Today on Friendly Fire, we ignore Directive 4 as we discuss the Paul Verhoeven 1987 masterpiece, RoboCop.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's here to serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law, but also a secret fourth thing. I'm Ben Harrison.
2: I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Is this a war movie?
0: <laughs> secret fourth thing. No, it's not a war movie.
1: I mean, somebody does say you work here for a living, so that kind of makes it seem like a war movie. It's definitely like a... like about the war on crime and the war on drugs. Yeah. But I feel like it's too, like, it's too deep in that milieu to, like, actually be a good comment on them.
0: But that's the thing. It's about things that already aren't war movies either. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, it's well, like, three kisses away from a war movie.
2: It's
1: like a, you know, a craven defense contracting company that is trying to militarize the police, and that's a big
2: issue. hmm Yeah, like... It feels a lot like aliens in that way. Yeah. It Like, uh, OCP is like the Weyland-Yutani of this Detroit universe. And I think there are, there's like eerily prescient things going on here in the early 80s that are telegraphing some, some contemporary problems, maybe.
1: A lot of things happened in the 80s that telegraphed contemporary problems.
2: <laughs> yeah, turns out. Uh, would you rather work for OCP or Waylon Utani if you had a choice?
1: If you work for OCP, your your job safety is largely based on whether or not people <laughs> are building their robots correctly.
2: Yeah, you do not want to attend the wrong board meeting at OCP. No,
1: no you'd think that that would be like the safest place in the world, but it is not.
2: <laughs> uh, this was one of the scenes that that gave the version we saw the X rating.
1: Yeah, so the the version as of this recording, the version that Amazon has streaming on Prime is the unrated slash X rated director's cut, and there's some speculation on the internet about whether that's a mistake. There's uh, it's it, it's previously been pretty rare, pretty hard to find, and uh, it's just out there streaming for anybody that has a Prime account right now, <laughs> and it is very bloody, like it it definitely ups the ante based on the already pretty extraordinarily violent original.
0: It was extraordinarily violent. It was also virant. (laughs) Uh, It was extraordinarily violent, but I like pushing the boundaries for sure. But I also wonder like that X rating felt uh, punitive at the time. And so much violence in movies has happened since then. I think yeah. what makes the violence so graphic is that there there's a lot of gore, right? Like there's bits, there's there's matter yeah. flying around. Things are, are truly, this man is truly exploding, but but it feels like 25, 30, I mean, 30 years later, right? We're 30 years after RoboCop now. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen so many, so many terrible, terrible things in film that- Although it, although it was graphically violent, I'm not sure like X rating.
1: Yeah, there's nothing in uh, in this that is worse than Saving Private Ryan's beach storming scene.
2: Right. However, like there is a cruelty in this film in its depiction of violence that most war films don't have. In that one of the worst parts of the boardroom scene is the guy begging for his life and trying to hide, and the rest of the board members like throwing him out into the open. <laughs> The same thing happens when Murphy is ostensibly killed. Like, there is, there's laughter from the people who are shooting him, and I think there's something about that cruelty that, I mean, I don't know what it takes to get a, a violence X rating, but right. I've got to believe that the, the capacity for cruelty is, is a part of that, right?
3: Hmm, yeah. Yeah,
0: that's a good observation.
2: But it really sets the tone, right? I mean, this is Paul Verhoeven's first American film. Like, wow, talk about throwing a, a bloody gauntlet to the ground like he is here.
0: <laughs> well, the word tone is, I think, the number one thing I'm still trying to grapple with. I mean, I saw this movie in the theaters and was uh, thrilled by it then. I mean, this movie came out when I was 18, just for context. Were you born yet, Ben? This
1: is 1987? 87. Yeah. Yeah, so I was a uh, a bouncing four-year-old boy. Uh-huh.
0: That's <laughs> wonderful. So I took a break from babysitting Ben. And I went to the movie. And, uh, no
1: wonder I have so much shit to work through with my, my therapist every week. I have suppressed memories.
0: <laughs> I took a break from bouncing Ben on my knee, and I went to see RoboCop, and I loved it. Um, And largely because the tone... Was so crazy. It was among the most violent and cruel movies you could possibly see, and also cartoonish, and like the humor was so black. It it was prescient, like you say, Adam, with the with the television commercials, the kind of cruelty that was throughout the whole culture depicted in the in the film, where it's just like, oh, you know, come and get your new Sport Heart. You know, it all just seemed like, wow, this is the future, even. Uh, It may be impossible for you guys to imagine this, but at the time, the Ford Taurus was (laughs) a brand new and super exciting looking futuristic car. And it had only just arrived on the scene. So we hadn't really seen very many Ford Tauruses. Uh This was like a very early... They used some really early Ford Tauruses. And so it looked like the future, like, wow, like we're almost... It was, it was our immediate future. And now, you know, they use the Ford Taurus as cop cars for what? a Like for a long time, a decade and a half. And now it just looks, it just looks like a used car lot, right? At the, at the time it was that car. These are the
1: cars that you see in movies getting like destroyed by other cars because they're mm-hmm. so cheaply had.
0: Yeah, right. And and most of the time when you would go to see a science fiction movie and they tried to make cars look like the future, they just took some Pintos and they, you know, they zip tied some plastic fenders on them and it was like future car. (laughs) Yeah. This, these looked like real cars. They were real cars. But the problem was that now watching it, I just can't, I can't place that tone. My whole experience of the movie was just, was, was tonal in a way.
2: It feels like we're watching a lot of films now that deal with moral relativism. And this is another one, right? Like ostensibly the goal, like, the character's goals in this film is the eradication of crime. Noble goal making, right there. But but the depiction of the people in this boardroom, whose job it is to to come up with technologies that that help make that possible, as well as the depictions of these criminals, are are terrifying. They are different sides of the same coin. And it's the real cops that are only that are the only good guys in the film. Right, normal cops, beat yeah. cops.
0: Human cops. Yeah. Yeah. The criminals are without without mercy. And the corporate boardroom guys are without mercy.
2: Does the old man have mercy? Like mm-hmm. do you think that you feel like at the end he was good the whole time and he is just a man being manipulated by the people sitting around him at the table.
0: Well, I mean, he's a he's like a man that became a billionaire as a defense contractor. Yeah. So, he's the Republican like country club guy.
1: Yeah. He's he's nice Dick Cheney. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I, I mean, so, yeah, he's he's nice compared to the coke-driven ambitious younger executives, one of whom is 30 and one of whom is 50. But I mean, you wouldn't if you made a movie about him, He's not Tony Stark, or maybe he, you know, maybe he is Tony Stark.
2: Yeah, I mean... Old Tony Stark. Tony Stark would be more than a little disappointed in the demonstration of Ed 209.
1: (laughs) I'm sure he'd have some really uh, terrific quip about it. He would.
0: He'd quip the shit out of that.
1: (laughs) The, like, moral side of this movie is really interesting to me because it's... This is, like, peak, peak drug war 80s, you know, like the the bad guys are bad not just because they do murders and rob banks, but because they sell drugs. And like, it seems like almost like what you would kind of hope for a legalized drug situation to look like. Like, they have a very clean factory that seems to have, like, good quality control, you know, stuff in place. Like... A wine-sipping
2: floor manager. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: like, like that is depicted as just as bad as anything else they do. And they also, like, they're not specialized at all. Like, the guy that runs the massive cocaine distribution operation is also uh, personally doing hits, you know, (laughs) leaving grenades in people's houses. And, like, the, the cruelty in that scene where they gun down Murphy is depicted as being part and partial of the kind of criminality that they're engaged in you know like I, I think that in the 80s it was really easy to see drug dealer as evil and that be like a totally uncomplicated idea or at least it seems that way watching this film
0: well you know let's see I mean in the 80s this is right in the middle of Miami Vice land and cocaine is recognized as an as a uh, as a bad drug and a big part of that is because it inspires so much violence but it's also these are the go go 80s cocaine is the is the moral retribution for living a life of pure excitement i mean there was a kind of this was also the reagan years right and so yeah. the the just say no mentality was sure do cocaine have sex go dancing but it will catch you in the end and you're going to, you're going to pay the price. You're going to go to hell. You're going to go to cocaine hell and you're going (laughs) to die in a, in a hail of bullets.
1: Yeah. You're going to be in a weird smelting factory dying in a hail of bullets,
0: right? Or dying uh, covered with toxic waste because, because karma is going to get you
1: right. Because doing cocaine is morally wrong.
0: Well, yeah. not that cocaine is morally wrong, but that it's a symptom of, of moral decay, right? Like the cocaine doesn't make you do it. It's the fact that you lose or somehow within the cocaine, it's like cocaine is a symbol of power and money in the 80s. Yeah. So it's power and money that corrupt a person. Cocaine is just what makes them dead eyed in the end. I mean, think of the end of Scarface. It isn't the cocaine that has made him a madman. That's just a symptom of the corrosive influence of power.
2: It's interesting that drug use in this film is depicted by those who are in power. And the criminals are mainly seen as being arbiters of violence. Right. Like they are not enjoying the drugs. The drugs are for the rich white people.
1: Well, you can't get high on your own supply. That's one of the Ten Crack Commandments. It
2: is for sure. Sure. You remember Kurtwood Smith's famous rap song, The Ten Crack Commandments? (laughs) You know, speaking of Kurtwood Smith, uh, the reason he wears the glasses is because Verhoeven thought he looked so much like Heinrich Himmler when he did. Whoa. You know, big head, little glasses, Heinrich Himmler. He's a strange villain. Yeah. Because he wouldn't look out of place in that boardroom. Right. Right. Kurtwood actually went out for the role of the old man, and he was recast.
0: Again, tonally... Strange. He, he communicates a kind of like, he's the smart, cruel guy, but he's so much crueler than he is smart. Yeah. You know, he doesn't, he does not appear to have a big plan. He spends the whole movie just wallowing in senseless violence. Seem, I mean, he's a good like negotiator, but he's, he's got that kind of violent negotiating.
2: Up until the moment where Dick Jones is like, I know you want out of this game, but check it out. Uh, New Delta City is going to be here shortly and, and you'll have exclusive drug dealing rights there. Does that keep you in the game? Right. Up, And it takes an hour to get to that point as far as figuring out like Boddicker's true motivations.
0: Well, and that's a proxy for the the idea that was, was coming online in 1987 too, which is, oh, the U.S. government is is behind the drug game we're selling drugs to buy arms, to support fascist revolutions in Central America, like all that uh, Iran Contra business. It was the first real mainstream understanding that what had been happening in the inner city was not just passive on the part of the powers that be, but like the drug war or the drug epidemic was not just being tolerated, but there were bigger tentacles.
2: Yeah. Why do you think it's important that this film is set in Detroit in 1987? This is a city and a time that I'm unfamiliar with outside of
0: reputation. Detroit was the the poster city for industrial decline and urban decay. Both things, right? Detroit was one of the cities that burned uh, throughout the 70s. You know, they did the they did terrible things in Detroit in in terms of. Attempts at urban renewal in the 60s and part of that was they slammed a freeway right through the heart of one of the most vibrant African-American communities in the United States just slammed a freeway right through the heart of it and it had been it had been a cultural epicenter and so the you know the white bosses of Detroit absolutely lost any sympathy with the African American community and it began so then the, the the death of Martin Luther King the death of Malcolm X the you know the and this is all along with the decline of the American auto industry and the steel industry it created a cauldron there where there wasn't another city that suffered as much as Detroit but it's a weird weird film in that there are Very few African-Americans in the movie. There's the sergeant in the police department and there's the one bad guy that has the like Joker laugh.
1: And there's the uh, there's the one lowly board member in the in the Johnson.
0: Oh, yeah. The kind of suck up board member. But Detroit is a is a like especially inner city. Detroit is a largely African-American community. Yeah. And so it was it had to be a real choice and it felt like a very eighties choice, like a very twenty one jump street choice, in that we were trying to depict and by say we, I mean we in the eighties who were making films. You and Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> we were trying to depict gang violence, but there was a lot of fear around depicting gang violence as a race um or like drug violence as also a a racial uh, race war
1: yeah it's why every like home alarm commercial has a blonde guy with two days of stubble sneaking around in the bushes outside your house exactly like here comes bad guy but
0: we're not racist here comes greg
1: (laughs) 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 it's i mean yeah like what the second you go down into the streets with robocop and he's going around fighting crime like you know right right as the as the tip of the spear, you know it's convenience store with a doddering old white couple running it. It's like like and and all of that stuff rings false. like
0: that's just like, here's Chad, the liquor yeah. store hold up guy
1: we have we have lived experience that tells us that there's not that many shitty urban convenience stores that are run by people that look like that, which is not like a qualitative assessment of that. It's just like kind of the truth of it.
0: My feeling is that Verhoeven, arriving in the United States with a kind of Dutch sensibility, wanted not to, like this was the high-minded approach, right? To portray, um, to portray inner-city Detroit and drug violence as a thing that was just happening between whites. right, And, and I think in 1987, that was seen maybe as an enlightened way of depicting it. Um, which which you wouldn't do later because, because, you know, starting with Boys in the Hood, it became clear that there were other filmmakers that were ready to look at the drug conflict as one that also had a large racial component. And Verhoeven's like, hey, I'm from the Netherlands, I'm an enlightened guy. But yeah. now you watch it and you're just like, what a weird cartoon this is.
1: I mean, I think that that's kind of tonally true of a lot of his films, where like, his sense of satire is is very confounding to the American sense of satire. Like, I mean, Starship Troopers was received as an earnest movie in, in America. And then he was like, no, no, it's supposed to be like a send-up of Nazism. And everybody's like, oh, it's actually pretty good in that case. Like, I kind of think this this suffers from the same confusion. I think a lot of people watched this movie and were like, fuck yeah, Robocop,
2: cool. As soon as a cut of this film was done, they were like, well, we need to screen it for police officers in the event that there is some sort of mobilization against the film. What surprised the filmmakers about this, how it was received by police officers, is that they fucking loved it because this is a film that depicts the proportionality that they are unable to wield in their jobs. This proportionality is like runs through this film the entire way like there are no half measures in terms of what is visited upon other people like Bob Morton is killed with a grenade in his house Murphy is not just killed in that warehouse he is totally destroyed So just like the guy in the boardroom, I would have expected like a Dutch stoicism (laughs) mentality to how, how these conflicts are depicted, but like Verhoeven here and Verhoeven throughout his entire career is not about that.
0: But, but at the same time, and it's very, it's curious, Robocop himself never engages in vengeance, right? Because of his directives. And that's, I bet, what appealed to cops so much is that RoboCop does he is trying to arrest people, trying to stop crime and 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 be a good cop. There's a lot of vengeance in this movie. All the people that we want to see receive vengeance do in spades. Yeah. And so it's it's very gratifying to us where you're like, these people are bad. They should suffer some karmic retribution. And they do. But it's <laughs> never at the hands of Robocop himself. These
2: criminals also do not play the criminal justice game of like when they're caught, they give up. Like these these criminals die because they don't. There's never an opportunity to put cuffs on them and stick them in the back of a cruiser. No one goes out that way.
0: Again, because of this I think this 19 or this mid 80s feeling that crime and criminals um, had had lost their moral compass that that society had lost its moral compass. I mean, when we we're living now in a world of make America great again, but we're not the first. This is not the first era to have those sympathies running through the middle class. In the 1980s, there was already a feeling that the 50s were a halcyon time when people obeyed the law, and by the 80s, we had this um, we had this urban decay. Now, now, I think Make America Great Again. Their idea of what's wrong with America is that the suburbs have lost their way. Right? That that half of the white population of America is has gone crazy. Um, In 1987, it was much more the inner cities have lost the plot and we need to return to that era of law and order. And maybe the way to do that is with robot killing machines.
2: Interesting that the only depictions of suburbia in this film are the empty house. That Murphy returns to after his wife and kid already left.
0: One of the spookiest scenes in the film. Yeah. With that robot real estate agent. Yeah. Why not make me an offer? I mean, I'm looking at houses right now and they still have real life real estate agents in our contemporary time.
1: Ugh, gross.
0: I know. Future listeners of Friendly Fire, decades from now, may be like, wow, that's so weird. Are you just there for the cookies? Yeah, I just, no, I just go through because I'm lonely. (laughs) I like talking to real estate agents. I'm not really looking for a house. And they have to talk to you, too. I'm in my car. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, there's, the third bedroom's kind of small. Will you talk to me? (laughs) (laughs) I really loved the character of Miguel Farrar. I loved his acting, and I loved his character, and I wondered... As I was watching this, how different Aliens would have been if he had been the Paul Reiser. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, Paul Reiser, Paul Reiser really made Aliens uh, in a way. But he, but Miguel Ferrar, like he just had such an arrogance, an eighties confidence. This was a character we saw a lot in the eighties: the ambitious, slick, young, shiny-suited, like um, this is the Wall Street character. Yeah. And you can't tell whether he's the hero of this movie or the uh, the ultra hero or the ultra villain through half of it. I mean because he's not he's cruel to RoboCop, but he also in a way like loves RoboCop.
1: He's very excited by RoboCop Super and also excited. like presumably he had like a hand in the first 3 directives in addition to the fourth. Like and the first 3 directives are surprisingly good considering like what he came fucked up, with up. <laughs> yeah like <laughs> yeah obviously like a a socialist didn't design this robot and build its moral compass but uh
0: can you imagine a socialist robot cop <laughs> boy how many directives would it have like 40 <laughs> <laughs> yeah do not perpetuate another class system
1: right yeah like, do not visit state violence upon at-risk
0: communities. Super effective robot cop.
2: <laughs> He'd just be sitting on a park bench <laughs> <laughs> looking at the little
0: ducks. He'd be standing in the middle of traffic refusing to make any <laughs> a, any bold motions like telling anyone to stop. I cannot yeah. tell people to stop. It is not within my power. <laughs> Bob Morton is, a, is kind of the center of the moral relativism of the movie. There are times when you're very sympathetic to him. He does not. He's ambitious. He, he wants power, but he does not want power over Detroit or civilization. He only wants power within the corporate structure. And every time he, and I mean, obviously the cops
1: hate him. Right, he's, he's not a Bond villain. He's just like an ambitious corporate douche.
0: Yeah, he's not, he's not like his boss. Like destroy old Detroit, build a new city, and populate it with new drug dealers. I don't think Bob
2: Morton allies with Boddicker either. Like that's never going to be his endgame. I think you're totally right about that. That's what makes Dick Jones the fucking worst guy in this film. Is that he's he is willing to do all those things. He yeah. does want that kind of power.
0: Sure. I mean, he's he's a villain, and it was so it was so hard to so hard to determine. Where to f- where to fall with Miguel Ferrar? I was sad to see him go because he was a, he was both the fun center of the movie and you kind of wanted to see his version of Robocop play out even if it meant that he was going to end up as as, uh, as executive vice president of OCP, right Like where would the company go in that direction? I mean it would be it would be like a flashy consumer products defense contractor company and not one that was that was socially engineering a new a new harsh realm
1: i don't know i having the like base of knowledge that i have about the the drug war and you know the like hand that the reagan administration had in the way drugs you know these specific kinds of drugs became available in our country and the 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 forces at work in in South America that you know enabled the cartels to become so stupendously powerful. Um, it feels like the it's it's impossible to for me to like look at this company and look at a, a cartel as being like terribly different types of organizations. You know they they uh, are entirely motivated by making money, and they occasionally do illegal things to to that end and like in the case of cartels it's obviously like much more explicitly illegal but uh you know Ronnie Cox retains a hitman to kill somebody that is just a business rival of him in this movie and I don't think that that's like a normal situation at a normal American company in 1987 but uh you didn't
2: work at Chrysler, though, Ben.
1: <laughs> we Lee don't know Ia- that. <laughs> Lee Iacocca was just having people off all the time.
2: <laughs> That's another thing I love about this movie are all the subtle, like the subtlety of Lee Iacocca Elementary, for example. Yeah, yeah. Like They really, really create a, this corporatized world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. like I, This movie indicts the one and the other, but it doesn't seem to like compare them at all. Uh, So, so I don't know. It, it, it it rings a little false in that, in that way to me, but maybe that's just my own personal bias about these kinds of issues.
0: There's a weird thread in the movie that is, that's critical of a third thing, which is, I think a big part of the history of the United States is the idea that we can socially engineer some form, uh, some vision of a utopia here that it isn't just, we're not very laissez-faire about how um, communities organize and develop. Right. And this is true on both the right and the left. Um, politically, we're anxious to intervene in, um, in communities in order to produce what we hope to be uh, a, a better future. So on the left, we're intervening all the time Primarily socially, through how um, how the schools you know what the curriculum of schools are um, but the left I mean the great society of Lyndon Johnson, um, affirmative action, busing these are attempts on the part of the left to redress inequality, uh, but it's a form of of intervening in in what is happening and uh, with yeah. the idea of creating a better world and on the right it usually takes the form of more law enforcement in order to create more security and safety for the middle class, more intervention in, in the form of, I mean, in a way, the big argument between the two it's, is, right?
1: Yeah, it's order versus justice.
0: Order versus justice. And the left likes to regulate. The right feels like less regulation, which is in, in itself its own kind of intervention. And this movie is critical of that, or, or rather, it is conscious of it. And so we're watching. And Detroit is the a perfect microcosm of it, because I see Ben where you would look at the the drug cartels and the corporations and see them as purely profit based. But there's, but
1: well, I, I see. Yeah, and and seeing them as a, a both a symptom of the kind of capitalism that. We practice, you know, where to a certain extent, a lot of money can can be a shield against law enforcement.
0: But when you look at Kurtwood Smith and you look at the old man there, they they never give a, a soliloquy about it. Yeah. But 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 it's intrinsic to the idea of New Detroit that they are also trying to create a utopia out of the ashes of what they see as a failed city. So it's not purely that they're motivated by profit; they see an opportunity to profit from a giant social engineering scheme. That they also they they're proud of themselves for having, um, for for their plan to yeah. cr- to create a new utopia, and that's what's interesting about Miguel Ferrar's character. He has very little interest in. Utopia. He's just interested in his cool thing and in his in his position within the company. And we don't Kirkwood Smith is clearly portrayed as like the worst side of the of capitalism, but, but but it's only because we never hear his we never hear his speech about how he envisions the future. I think it's implied and I definitely feel like Verhoven is making a comment on it. The idea at the time that like the greed is good mentality, that what happens when you deregulate and you let investment banking and you let developers take the reins, they're not immoral. They have a morality. It's trickle-down economics. It's that if, you, if the rich get richer, it, it lifts all boats. You know, they they see themselves as, as crusaders.
3: I'd buy that for a
0: dollar. <laughs>
1: what do you guys think would be the situation for me in Delta City as a platinum medallion?
0: <laughs> oh, you'd never, your feet would never touch the street. <laughs> It'd be great. You'd leave your air-conditioned high-rise, get in your <laughs> air-conditioned Taurus, take your ride right out to Detroit International Airport. Yeah. Just looking forward to that, you know. Platinum Ben, they call
2: him. You'd yep. be doing a lot of coke off of bitches' chests.
0: Yeah, <laughs> her that the one gal's leather green leather matching like motorcycle jacket and miniskirt. I, I that's burned into my retinas.
2: <laughs> there was a lot of method acting happening on set and around the set, and in one of the ways that that <laughs> did anybody Brando in this movie, Adam. Uh, they called these women bitches on set. On bitch. On yeah, set. that was who like, they were.
0: That's who they were.
2: Huh? That's an that's an unfortunate story. Let's I read bring the bitches this. in. Yeah, yeah. Yikes. I don't know if this was a uh, a misspeak or not, but I just want to drill down on this a little bit with you, John, and that you thought that Boddicker represented the the evil capitalist. Which one is Boddicker now? Boddicker's Kurtwood Smith. Kurtwood Smith and Dick Jones is the Ronnie Cox character oh, who I no. thought you meant. By I that. meant
0: Dick Jones. I did okay. not mean Boddicker. Okay. I'm sorry, I got that mixed up. It's uh, it's all these actors and all their names. Kind of great, a movie full of great names. I think. Yeah. Did you hear? Did you hear the story of Kurtwood Smith that his his mother uh, named him Kurt, but she didn't feel like that had enough flash, so she just tacked wood onto the end (laughs) she thought like kurt smith was not quite cool enough enough. yeah you know and um she was like she liked country music and so she she put wood on the end he 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 has speculated that he may be the only kurtwood in the world although kurtwood feels like the name of a of a midwestern suburb yeah Mm. come on out to kurtwood
2: (laughs) yeah a country music festival great star trek guy as is ronnie cox A lot of
0: Star Trekers in this, yeah.
2: What do you make of the relationship between Murphy and Lewis, such as it is? I don't know, it's interesting, like, when they
1: first meet in the precinct, like, it kind of, it it, it almost seems like they're setting it up that they're going to have, like, a really, uh, you know, a real combative, competitive relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. like the thing where he kind of shoves her out of the way and gets in the driver's seat, says, I always drive when I'm breaking in a new partner. Even though he's the one that's new to the precinct. But th- but then, like, he kind of gives this, like, sheepish smile that is, like... It kind of makes it clear that he's just joking around and that's not really his personality. And they like each other instantly.
2: Yeah, I never expected Murphy to be as cute as he was in this film the first time I saw it.
0: Like, he's got a lot of that kind of cute charisma. He does. He does. And as soon as Nancy Allen takes off her helmet in that police station... We all fall in love with her because yeah. she's like the she's I wouldn't say she was the poor man's Meg Ryan. She was <laughs> like she's alternate universe Meg Ryan, but just like she her her electric smile when she meets Murphy and like yeah. he's like hey and she's like hey. And it's like, oh, I hope they get married. And
2: it's right after she kicks that guy's ass. Kicks his ass, right. Yeah. So we're
0: And it, that's total Verhoeven, right? Yeah. Oh, this is the first movie, too, where he had a scene in a locker room that was like co-ed locker room where everybody's naked. <laughs>
2: How would you like yeah. that to be your leitmotif? Yeah. Like
0: co-ed locker room new That's routine. my deal, yeah. buddy.
2: <laughs> He's
1: like, you know what you get with Roderick. <laughs> Still working on co-ed locker room. Like, even the, like the last movie we watched, the scene where she's dying her pubes, a guy just yeah. walks in. It's like, hey, just in here
0: dying my pubes. <laughs> that's his thing it's his thing but Nancy Allen like throughout the throughout the film she's the (laughs) she's the capable androgynous partner but also extremely feminine like Paul Verhoeven loves beautiful women and likes to feature them as badasses but also he doesn't shy away from putting a little Vaseline on the lens
1: not not ashamed of his
0: male gaze no not at all
2: they go through some lengths to desexualize her, cause on like they gave her seven haircuts before they finally reached a short enough length to where like they were happy with how she looked. And it's interesting who they choose to sexualize in this film. That's like, one of
0: my favorite uh, kung fu movies. Is Seven Haircuts.
2: <laughs> <laughs> like she, she is as sexual as you've made her out to be. But it's it's like the scientist characters who are hypersexualized. Oh yeah, they're in this all film. like
0: trying to fuck each other. Yeah. I feel like Nancy Allen had to be somewhat desexualized because her love interest is Robocop, who has no genitalia. So she has uh, to... Sp-
2: he might know, have... I'm, I'm
0: pretty sure.
2: Have a giant fucking desert eagle of I'm genitalia.
0: <laughs> pretty Jesus. sure that, that Nancy Allen's love affair with Robocop has to be fairly chaste, right? So she, she's a sister to him, she, she cares for him, she's a nurturing figure, but she can't, at no point can she put her arms around RoboCop and... Oh, they wouldn't reach. Right, and plausibly so say like, oh, RoboCop.
2: Weren't they always going to be work husband and work wife though, because Murphy's married and as a kid, like yeah. they were always going to have that relationship only.
0: Right, well... Adam, that's so sweet of you.
2: You, you don't think that's you so think they you were going to cross the guy. line to
0: be like? I mean, they're married. They would never have any sexual tension.
2: I'm familiar <laughs> with the idea uh, of having a work wife. Yeah. Or a or a work husband. Yeah,
0: in your case, it's Ben.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of needs. I know John. you do. I know you do. <laughs>
1: I can fulfill the need of Adam to do bits.
0: That's why when you take Greatest Gen on tour, you guys have a curtain over the front of your table. Mm-hmm.
1: We always stay in the uh, stay in the one room with the king size bed. Mm.
2: <laughs> Lewis saves his life in the end, and I don't think that is an accident. Like you would expect that Boddicker's comeuppance would be utterly and solely RoboCop's doing. Right. But he cannot, that's not a survivable situation without Lewis. She does a ton of work to make that death possible. She arguably has the biggest kaboom in that scene by, uh, by
0: blowing up Ray Wise's character <laughs> in the turret. But we, never, we don't see her at the end, right? We see RoboCop at the end. Right. She took seven bullets or something and, and is laying in a mud puddle she Those are going to get shot. infected. They're going to get infected, right? And we don't see her then. We don't know if she survived. I mean, there, there's a moment where it's suggested when, when RoboCop says, they can fix you up. The, yeah. it's, we, the, it's suggested that we might see Nancy Allen RoboCop. That sounds end. like
2: punishment when it comes from his mouth, right? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I know, yeah.
1: The risk of somebody else being made into RoboCop seems pregnant in this movie and it is never addressed.
2: Right, right.
1: Maybe that's uh, what they do in RoboCop 2. I don't think I've ever seen
0: it. I never saw it either. And Nancy Allen is in RoboCop 2, so I guess she does survive.
1: Wow. I think Dan O'Hurlihy is also in RoboCop 2. The old man makes a comeback. The old, man.
2: Yeah. the old man lives in the end because he's able to... Uh, oh, right. Do you think he accidentally knows or totally knows that the only way to extricate boddicker from directive four is by firing him
0: i don't know he fires him with an awful lot of like this is the best line in the movie dick
3: you're fired
1: i wanted robocop to then have to go down and like make sure the paperwork was finalized in the right. human yeah. resources department before coming back up and wasting him
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> Boy, uh, I mean, this is one of those scenes, one of many, where for as great as the RoboCop suit is, there are a lot of effects in the film that don't really last the test of time. And it's curious to me that for a film that came out uh, right around the time of Aliens, I feel like the Aliens effects do in a way that this film does not.
0: You're talking about the total claymation ED-209?
2: Yeah, the stop motion ED-209. Uh, everything in that boardroom also like the skyline looks all matted in uh awkwardly well it's probably just a big photograph right they put on a psych there are some panels of the window that are exposed differently than others though in in a weird way
0: i feel like that has a lot to do with the fact that this movie had a small budget and a hard time getting made yeah um it did not seem to to film executives at the time like a um, summertime feel good movie, and they made I think they made the entire movie for like thirteen million dollars.
2: Verhoeven did something so shrewd in this film; he waited uh, to shoot Murphy's death last. Like they ran out of budget runway, and he's like, "Well, we don't have a movie unless we depict the death of Murphy." Studios like, "All right, fine. Like, go shoot the 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 death of Murphy scene." and that's how he was able to afford all of it
1: the thing in this in this cut that i think is like the most awesome that is not in the in the cut that most people have seen is the pan around murphy's head and it's like an entire f- prosthetic murphy so you you in an unbroken shot you get to you get to see him in 360 degrees and then kurtwood smith blows a hole in his head and then like the You know, the blood splatters out the back of it and it's maybe the best effect in the movie.
0: It does not seem like a survivable wound. And I think if we'd seen that in 87 in a movie theater, that that wound is close enough to the Kennedy assassination in terms of what it what it did to his head. I think it would have I think that would have been the most shocking special effect in the movie. I don't know how we would have reacted to that at the time as, a, yeah. as film goers. Now I'm speaking on behalf of all film goers in the 80s.
1: <laughs> That's what you're here for. That's right. I mean, you do see that, like, the evidence of where the bullet entered when, when he gets the helmet off toward the end, right? Like the that kind of, like, star pattern on his forehead.
2: I'm sure this won't surprise anyone to know that all of the trauma nurses and doctors in that room were... Real people and not actors.
1: Oh, you mean like in the in the ER scene? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. They're all
2: just ad-libbing plausible trauma lines. Yeah, I just kept waiting for George Clooney to lean in.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here too.
2: <laughs> George Clooney is uh,
0: Miguel Ferrer's second cousin. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Miguel and I would have I would say Ferrar, although it may be Ferrer. Jose Ferrar is. What I don't the, think we can interrogate this. No, let's not interrogate on the show. It's probably it has something to do with the Soviet Union, but, but his <laughs> Miguel Farrar, like you wouldn't know it, but his mother is Rosemary Clooney and his father is, his yeah. Oscar winner Jose Ferrar. Like he's a, he is legacy. He's a uh, Hollywood ro- royalty. Pretty cool. And you didn't see him in enough movies. He is
2: really great in this movie. That scene in the bathroom might be my favorite scene of his where he's talking shit about Dick Jones.
0: He's clearly intimidated by him, but at the same time, like, just right back at him.
2: That's the line, right? Like, like Dick Jones basically grabs him by the back of the head, and he never, like, you know he's scared, but he's playing the kind of scared that is trying not to look scared yeah. and trying to look brave instead. That meta acting that he does in that scene is really spectacular.
1: It's a fun scene with a couple of great, great actors. I like seeing these dudes and stuff.
2: Plus, you get a guy zipping up before finishing pissing yeah. to, <laughs> just like, to get out of the bathroom. Of that was fun. Yeah, yeah
1: the uh, the punch in on the on the damp spot on the, <laughs> on his crotch is is a uh, pretty funny. <laughs> I was looking for a natural place to slot this in, but I didn't find one. Do you guys want to hear something that distracted a nerd on the internet in this film? Hell yeah. The Shell oil station where Murphy confronts Emil shows corrugated garden hoses spooled around a steel wheel as hose coming from the gasoline pump. No gas station in history has ever used such a setup with spooled up hose full of gasoline and exposed in the open, as it would be directly against several OSHA regulations regarding the dispensing of gasoline. Hear, hear. <laughs>
0: This is the first internet pedant that I can really get on board
1: with. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think you've agreed with like 30, 40% of these.
0: <laughs> but I like my gas stations to be OSHA compliant.
1: Yeah, I mean, it would have been nice if it was OSHA compliant. Um, I thought it was pretty amazing, the uh, those special effects in that. I mean, it looks like they have an actor in that suit, like, very close to a big flame ball. I don't know if yeah. they actually did it or if that's a comp, but... It looks perfect, whatever it is. They had
2: seven different RoboCop suits in this film. One of them was made specifically for this scene and was bulked up with, with fire retardant. But yeah, there was a guy in that fire wearing that suit. Wow.
0: That suit, which is largely made of plastic. Yeah. Pretty crazy.
1: Apparently they thought of Schwarzenegger for the RoboCop role Originally, but he was too big and they thought that the suit would look really stupid if they made it big enough for Schwarzenegger.
0: Good decision. I think it would have. Yeah. Peter Weller at this point was kind of most famous for appearing in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, which, which was kind of a cult film of the mid 80s. Yeah. And,
1: and a bad film.
0: I was, there were a lot of people that were on team buckaroo bonsai. I was very against buckaroo bonsai. I was not team buckaroo bonsai. I was team hate buckaroo bonsai. Hmm. So when I first saw this, when, when he first arrives on screen in the movie, I went and I didn't like his face throughout the film. Um, but you know what I, you did, Peter Weller. You know what you did. You made Buckaroo Bonsai. It's unforgivable. <laughs> but when he appeared on the film this time, I had the same reaction that Adam did. Like, oh, he's a beautiful boy. Like, look at him. He's uh, he's slight and he's pretty and he's sly. He does a lot of good, act, like face acting. And then he, he immediately goes into the suit and he spends, the, re- I, I, the rest of the time, I think it was, he was... Um, he was doing so much characterization with, his, with the choreography of that character, the way that he would turn his head.
1: Yeah, the way he kind of pops and locks.
0: Yeah. Um, and so I thought he was really great in that. He made that suit come alive. He still doesn't get a pass for Buckaroo Bonsai, but... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. There will always be that blemish on his permanent record.
3: This guy's really good. He's not a guy. He's a machine. What are they going to do?
0: Replace us? It's such a strange mishmash because the police station is completely pre-modern, right? They don't have any technology there that wouldn't be present in Hill Street Blues. <laughs> They're just cops. They have body armor. But they just have normal guns. They don't have any computers even on their desks.
2: That's a great point. You walk outside the police station and it's like glass and chrome. Right. Yeah, but it's, inside it, it's like, like cheers. Yeah.
1: William Gibson on the outside, cheers on the inside.
2: That Was that your high school superlative, <laughs> <laughs> Ben?
0: William Gibson on the outside. Mm,
1: nobody was inside me in high school.
0: <laughs> but that was a weird set that was a weird setting because, because we are living in, in within the film in this world where they can rebuild a man into a robot and you can go get a, you can get an artificial heart that's Nike branded. And yet like policing is still like a strange, like prehistoric culture.
1: Yeah. The premise of policing is, uh, it goes totally uninterrogated or as Adam would say, uninterrogated in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, In a way that I I mean, I don't know that this is the movie to to take a close look at like whether the underlying fundamental principles of policing are are good or bad. But uh, but it does just present all police as being like basically good people that want to get paid a fair wage for their work and serve the public trust or whatever.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're busting drunks and threatening to strike for threatening to strike. I mean, yeah. you know, what a what an 80s or what a 70s theme that runs through the police culture. Yeah. And and it would have been very
1: easy or maybe in, just like a European theme, maybe a European maybe, theme. Maybe right. Verhoven was like, "Why aren't they uh, talking about striking all the time?"
0: Yeah, why aren't they bringing their tractors in the middle of Paris? <laughs> Uh, but but super weird because it would have been so easy for him to also have technologically like <laughs> it could have been so easy to futurize the police department also yeah. and give them heads up displays and put all that future technology. And maybe he didn't because he wanted RoboCop to stand in contrast. Yeah. But 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 an interesting and 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 clearly like intentional choice.
2: That sergeant character is so interesting to me for having to straddle that argument like he on the one hand is leading a group of officers who are struggling and dying all the time every day. He's hearing them talk about strike and yet he's the guy who has to say we're police
0: officers and we don't do that right. Well, and it's the, it's the beginning of a, of a paranoia that we have, that we actually really saw take place during the Iraq war, which was the corporatization of the police and the military. And that would have been, that, that was super revolutionary at the time that the police sergeant was taking orders from a boardroom guy. Yeah. And the boardroom guy never, even for a second, hesitated to, to act like the cop worked for him.
1: But I mean, like that's like the corporate prison and the and the corporate security force are now like totally standard parts of our reality, and that's something that OCP uh, prides itself on being great at.
0: Right, the the blackwater element, where it's like, oh well, half of the way we're going to fight this Iraq war is through these private companies that are just putting like it's just like the war in Rhodesia, you know, it's that they're just putting armies on the ground.
2: If you had to make this decision and the decision was you get RoboCop as he is in this film in the beginning, like not as a human, but I mean like the realized RoboCop out on the streets doing patrols and a predictable outcome of that is like the end of crime in a couple of weeks. Like, do you, do you stick him in a Ford Taurus and let him loose on your city? No,
1: because it's not. I mean, that's not what how crime works, you know. Like,
2: I know that's not how crime works. I'm trying to ask a fantasy question here.
0: Like, say he's real.
1: Sorry, I'm. Uh, I grew up in Oakland. I just can't get behind this.
0: <laughs> I mean, the 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 principle of good policing is that police officers be empowered to make on-the-spot decisions that that take into account the truth of the moment. And you can't have policing or courts guide, that have um, like strict guidelines, right? This is like sentencing minimums. Mm-hmm. A lot of these are Reagan-era ideas. This is three strikes, you're out. An attempt to remove the human element and so what you get is police officers, it, when you use these these um, principles, right, you get police officers that walk into situations and they are by the book in every instance, but they escalate problems. They create more trouble as a result of walking into situations without bringing context.
1: And And then when you have a prison system that's entirely punitive and does not give any credence to the idea of... Uh, you know, reforming or providing opportunities for people that would uh, enable them to not be at the business end of the law enforcement apparatus. You know, it's just it it's, it's a self perpetuating problem. Like, but
0: the but the conservative argument against rehabilitation, against judges that make deter you know that make personal determinations, against cops. Who have the who have the authority to, or who are members of the community, right. is that it produces a culture that is soft on crime. Right. It's a it's a national problem yeah. that police departments have an internal culture that sees the population not as themselves, but as a separate entity that they're that they are policing like they're herd dogs or something.
2: It's um, I mean it's unfortunate that a consequence of powerful jobs is that people who seek power are the, those that would
0: most like to have them. Although that power is, you know, the, the power that's afforded police officers is entirely intu- institutional power. They don't have any real personal decision-making authority in a lot of these situations. They're, again, they're just going by the book. I mean, obviously they have the power to pull their gun out and make a decision on the fly whether to shoot a guy 50 times. In those those police guns that all have 50 bullets in them. Did I say 50? I meant
1: 15. <laughs> Maybe they got the
2: extended clip. Who knows? The
0: Desert Eagle extended clip. <laughs>
2: that scene on the shooting range was fun, right? When everyone uh, realizes that one of the cops at the range has that kind of firepower. Yeah. That was a dressed up uh, automatic pistol that they used. Like they They bolted on a bunch of parts to it to make it huge originally robocop's gun was going to be the desert eagle that you see earlier on in the boardroom and they thought it looked too small in robocop's
0: hand the biggest of all the guns yeah too puny yeah pretty fun there's a whole subculture of people that fetishize movie guns yeah the the blade runner gun being the like ultimate ultimate movie gun I heard
1: some guy talking about the uh, the Han Solo blaster and how it, like all of the parts on it are from like some really specific camera that you can buy. Like you can find this camera on eBay and then like modify whatever the basic gun was to to make it look exactly like Han Solo's blaster.
0: I mean that's a whole that's a whole world. Adam Savage has built probably fifteen versions of the um, of the Blade Runner blaster each one uh, an evolution of it because I think for a long time there were all you all you had was what was on the screen there were no extant blasters available and uh, and then I think one one appeared and then another appeared and but yeah it's a whole culture although I don't know anybody that's got the RoboCop super gun
2: The anti-tank weapon that Boddicker is able to produce for his gang later on. Pretty crazy. That is one of the moments of like, of artillery ecstasy in war films. The idea that you've got that kind of cannon that can just blow up an entire porn theater. Like, (laughs) Like, they are having
0: so much fun in that street. When they blew up that porn theater, I was like, there's fucking 50 guys in there. Yeah. That's not cool. I mean, you walk around, you're blowing up like abandoned cars. That's fine. Yeah. But that porn theater had its lights on. That was not an abandoned porn
2: theater. Boddicker was not going to let someone else have his car. And this kind of car vanity is kind of a thing that I understand.
0: Like, you you, you want the 6,000 sucks?
2: Boddicker <laughs> thinks that he's, he's the only guy who's got the 6,000 sucks. And then guy in the beret rolls up and he's like, hey, this is great, right? We're car buds. No, they are not. <laughs> no.
1: Should we, uh, should we rate this fucker?
2: Yeah, this is the best part of the show, right? The part where I devise a customized rating system based on the film we've just seen? It's the
1: best
0: part yeah. for you. I'm not sure it's the best part of the show. It's the
2: only thing I get to do. It's, it's the way I'm depended on. like a, <laughs> Like a Reebok brand heart. I'm the mechanical soul of this thing
0: we're doing. That's right. You're one of those pump-up tennis shoes.
2: In the movie RoboCop, there is a device that crosses in between worlds. Right, it's a device that both accesses a computer, but anthropomorphizes a middle finger when necessary to either flick a guy off or stab a botiker in the neck. Like it's both, it's both weapon and utility yeah. and and emotion. And so, RoboCop's metal middle finger. <laughs> And the number of them between one and five is going to be the rating system for Robocop. Uh, this metal middle finger arrives at a crucial time. It's the moment where it's the moment right after Robocop has the bad dream and starts to realize that he might be Alex Murphy. And so he goes into the server room, jams his middle finger into the computer and and starts looking up files. He does this a couple of times, but the most crucial time is when he finds out, uh, that Boddicker was the the instrument of of his human version's death. I understand that people do not believe RoboCop is a war movie, and that is pretty clear in a number of areas. But I think one of the things that is that is true, objectively true, is that RoboCop is a great movie. I love it personally. I love all of the little details. With like news as entertainment, like five minute news bites that, that combine the most horrific of news and also the most benign, the medical device commercials that it seems like we see during every commercial break now, the, uh, the deification of the corporation to the exclusion of, of anything else. I love it. It's dark and it's violent and it's, it's terrifying, but it's so much fun. And funny. Like, that's one of the things that we didn't discuss on this episode of the show, which was just how much comedy there is in this film. And I think it's intentional comedy. Um, I love RoboCop. I don't have much love for the sequels, but I'm going to give this four metal middle fingers. Big, big score. Wow. <laughs> what say you? Um, I'm uh
1: not quite as hot on this movie as you are, Adam. I I, I agree that it's like fun and funny, and I think that uh, it's a pretty impressive movie given the budget and uh, and all that. But yeah, I, I I don't really connect with the main character that much. I think that it has it has a tough time humanizing him after he's in the suit, and you know, it tries to make this idyllic life that he kind of feebly remembers uh, something that you can, you know, get your fingertips into as far as like identifying with him. But I don't know, like once, once he is RoboCop, like, I I don't know. I I just didn't, I didn't care that much about what happened to anybody after that. It feels like uh, the movie is almost over at that point. And as a, as a critique of, you know, corporatism or, the militarization of the police or the way that corporations and the powerful are working hand in glove with the organized criminal elements in our society. It kind of falls apart when I take too close a look at any one part of it. So uh, for its funness, I'm a, I'm a fan, but for like the, I think it sets out to make some, some pretty big points and I don't think that it makes them. And for, and it, also uh isn't a character that i uh hold that much love for in my heart so i'm gonna give it two and a half middle fingers
2: pretty different sides of this one me and ben
0: what about you john i feel like this is the ultimate sort of pork chop movie uh by your guys's definition right something that you could put on if you loved it as adam does and watch it periodically yeah to kind of blank out on. And that's um, evidence of what you're saying, Ben, which is that it kind of fails as a social commentary. If you watch it that way, if you just watch it as like a fun adventure and there's a lot in the movie, the cartoony elements and the cartoon violence and the, the, you, and you can watch it where the bad guys are just simple bad guys and the good guys are simple, good guys. And maybe that's um maybe that's a credit to the satire for me. It's an incredible document of the 80s. And watching it, it just evokes so many 80s memories. All the, all the surfaces are 80s. The temperature of the room is 80s. The fashion, the haircuts, the it's, it is the 80s idea of the future, which is that when you go to a club, when you go to a dance club, everyone in there will have mohawks and dog collars. <laughs> You know, it's this. Uh, it was the idea that was really true then, which was that punk rock was the style of punk was going to be what all future futures looked like. If you if, if you watch movies that try to depict the future, there's always two guys with a mohawk. Yeah. But as far as a movie goes, the tone is so hard to grab onto. It feels like. In a way, the satire is, is condescending. But, it, but honestly, at the time, that worked. Those TV commercials that are interspersed. Incidentally, the, the female newscaster is Lisa Gibbons. Yeah, from Entertainment Tonight. From Entertainment Tonight, right? I mean, it was so on the nose. So I end up right in the middle with three R2-D2-style Pointy metal middle fingers. <laughs> and one green leather mini skirt motorcycle <laughs> jacket. <laughs> Outfit covered in cocaine.
2: Much like uh, the films can't be compared to each other, your rating for an individual film can't be compared to me or Ben's rating of that film. <laughs> That's great. <laughs>
0: good stuff i'd love to be with intelligent women
2: feels like a film with a lot of possible guys but who's your guy john
0: my guy is the lady scientist with the really big blue 80s glasses (laughs) who is so excited by the technology so into robocop kind of loves him yeah right she kisses him on new year's eve she can't like, and she's the prime exemplar of what you were saying, which was like the scientists seem to be like having a crazy party in there on their side of the equation. Um, she's the one that notices Robocop is having a dream. Every time she's on screen i I just gravitated to her as an actor and um, and her just sort of, I don't know, her 80s hair up, blue glasses, scientist thing where she kind of looked like she was in a David Lee Roth video yeah. and was going to get up on a school desk at some point and take down her hair and t- take off her glasses. Really and, oh, <laughs> Wow, she's beautiful sudden, under that. <laughs> you, yeah, you didn't realize that she was beautiful, amazing. <laughs> what a transformation. She took off her glasses. So, uh, And the, uh, the, uh, the actress is Diane Robin who, it was kind of hard to find her name um, because she's not for as big of a character as I felt she was in the movie, she wasn't featured in the credits, I guess. Yeah. Um, She's got some Tawny Katane vibes. She really does. And I was, I, was, I was especially enamored with Tawny Katane at this time in my life, too. Oh, yeah. Mid-80s. Peak Katane. It was peak Katane when she was that's kind of hard
2: to say that's almost like spoiler alerts
0: this is this is right when when tawny Catane was rolling around on the hood of a jaguar yeah and you're like wait a minute i had respect (laughs) for you before why are you with the white snake guys this seems (laughs) weird that seems like a step beneath you tawny (laughs) Catane. Um,
1: my guy is uh, the other time in the movie where somebody gets caught saying something impolitic with somebody behind them uh, there's officer Kaplan in the uh, co-educational dressing room for the cops saying we should strike fuck him and the sergeant <laughs> is standing right behind him uh, I just uh, I am always that guy in real life so
0: where you say where you finally get up the nerve to say something bold and then, the boss is right behind you.
1: Yeah, except for I'm like what's his nose, I don't then back it up with uh, self-assuredness when I get caught, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh that was my guy. How about you, Adam?
2: I think I'm going to make my guy Johnson, the OCP exec who isn't totally good and not totally evil. He's always kind of there as a conversational foil with with people like uh with Bob Morton. He <laughs> He's also like he makes some real cartoonish choices with his facial expressions that I really like. Yeah. Like when like in that first boardroom scene, the camera just finds his face. Mm-hmm. He is almost like a Keenan Thompson level of like just find him reacting to things. And maybe like the the cherry on top of the entire film is after Robocop wins and Dick Jones has been thrown out a window, like like Johnson's cartoonish thumbs up to robo as he leaves (laughs) is so like it's such a spectacular catharsis at the end of this thing you aren't really sure what you've seen you aren't really sure whether to take it seriously or not and that thumbs up doesn't really help but like it it happens right before the smashed credits in such a way that like he survives a film that it seemed impossible that he would as a, begin- right? as a junior
0: executive, as
2: as a junior executive, as a black character in an action film in the '80s, also like he makes it all the way, he outlives everyone. He might be the new
0: VP of, of OCP. Sure, he looked like the ultimate red shirt when he walked yeah. into the when he walked into the elevator at the beginning of the movie.
2: But yeah. he survives because he he makes some choices not to uh, outside of facial expression. He doesn't stick out. In yeah. such a way that like makes him a target for Ed two o nine, or makes him a target for for Boddicker later on, but he's like a counselor too to Bob Morton in a in a very good way. I sort of liked his, I liked his use in this film, and so Johnson's my guy for that reason.
1: Speaking of the smash to credits, that is such a weird cut right (laughs) it's like his like RoboCop turns and starts to walk away but he's not even off screen before they just cut to like Helvetica text that says RoboCop in all caps
2: what the hell it's one of the great like it's one of the great cut to title musical score action film 80s tropes like everything works together in that moment to like (laughs) to deliver like those final chills when you get up out of the theater and leave I love that moment I think it's clunky and bad.
0: <laughs> All of the typeface—I mean, that the opening of this movie—it's so hard to take yeah, anything seriously. zoom into camera, yeah, yeah, with the with the weird like bolted together metal font. No,
2: isn't it crazy that this film spawned like a multi-million-dollar toy product line?
0: At RoboCop <laughs> as a de- as a deliverer of of like, I don't know, uh, objective justice. I think probably why this movie played so well with cops is that he just got to do everything right. He saved the innocent. He delivered justice unto the cold, unfeeling baddies. Yeah. I mean, it's just exactly what a kid would imagine a, a robotic cop could do.
1: So I was a little kid at the time. Like, I, I I, have very intense memories of seeing commercials for RoboCop toys and Aliens toys when I was yeah. a kid, and just being, like, totally at sea in terms of, like, understanding what they were. Like, they didn't seem to be from a cartoon that I had access to, and I, you know, obviously wasn't allowed to watch either of these movies when I was, like, five years old. I, I just I couldn't I saw those commercials and was like what the fuck is, is is this even you know I guess there were some parents that were like making this stuff available to their kids I
0: don't know I mean these were these were the grown-up cartoons this is the first uh the first I- instance I guess iteration of grown-up entertainment for a generation of people that didn't intend to grow up right uh, right I mean these were I was I was uh, 18, 19 years old, and desperately still wanted to be playing with G.I. Joes. And this, you know, because, my God, adulthood seemed so uncool. And the the yuppies before me were the original sort of Spider-Man comic reading people that also never wanted to grow up. And so here came the toys, here came the tie-ins. And I, I bet you a lot of parents bought RoboCops for their kids. Who the, uh, where the kids didn't see the movie, and it was mostly because the parents wanted to play with the RoboCop after the kids went to bed.
1: Right, <laughs> man, never even thought of that.
0: Yeah, taking out re- revenge on that guy that cut them off in traffic that day. RoboCop, killing you. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're not a man of many impressions, John, but you do have that RoboCop ready to go. <laughs> RoboCop,
0: <laughs> robot cop. <laughs>
2: Well, uh, why don't we see what film we're watching next? Maybe yeah. it's another Paul Verhoeven
0: film, won't but that, probably not. Won't that exceed our Verhoeven limits? Won't that exceed our Verhoeven limits?
2: Mm. Let's just watch two hours of co-ed uh, locker room footage.
0: Uh, yeah, Verhoeven supercut of just all the gratuitous breastises <laughs> in his films, where he's trying to he's trying to indicate that in the future... Uh, it won't be any kind of big deal, yeah. That uh, public, a little bit of public nudity, but in our present, it's a really big deal because he really wants it in every movie.
2: Yeah. How many films are on the list, Ben?
1: Doesn't matter. We only have a hundred on the uh, on the die, right? That's right. So it's a
2: hundred sided die.
1: I have randomized the list, so it's going to be one of the first one hundred on that list. Here
0: we go. Oh wait, let me get some foley here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Great thing about the hundred-sided die is it just rolls and rolls. Okay, it is number 24.
1: Number 24 is, oh, interesting. Uh, it's a World War I film by Stanley Kubrick from 1957. It's Paths of Glory. Just to like let people in behind the curtain, we uh, we actually recorded our World War One uh, remembrance uh, episode in between Robocop and Black Book. So uh, uh, World War One is really on our minds lately. and uh, this is uh, this is supposed to be a really splendid film, and uh, there's there's some like really famous camera work in this movie like tracking shots of uh, Kirk Douglas and stuff. Adam, you added this to the list. Do you have any uh, any thoughts on it, or was this just part of your your moment where you scraped the internet for all war movie titles?
2: Uh, I added it to the list because this is a Kubrick that I haven't seen. Right on. And, that's, and that so is came, that.
0: It came from your love of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. Nice. I've not seen it either.
1: I'm, uh, yeah I haven't uh, this is gonna be new for all of us I'm really looking forward to it all right well uh, this has been uh, another edge case episode of friendly fire but uh, usually we will re- review war movies and we'll be back on that next week uh, so we'll let Rob take it from here for John Roderick and Adam Pranica I've been Ben Harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts <laughs>
3: Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte, and our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Our logo art, it's by Nick Dittmar. If you'd like to continue this conversation online, why don't you use the hashtag Friendly Fire? Or you can go discuss this show over on Facebook or Reddit. We've got plenty of spaces for everyone to talk there. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. You can leave us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, that's very helpful, or head on over to MaximumFun.org donate to support the ongoing production of this show. Thanks so much, we'll see you next week.